all, and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Uh, welcome, listeners. I want to give a little bit of background on today's show. We're doing a little bit of hard news after um, a lot of kind of lighter pop culture episodes of this show. Um, obviously, I think the most important story in the world right now is uh, what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, as most of you know, uh, President Biden decided and announced to withdraw American troops uh, within days you know, Taliban was having a press conference. Questions have been raised about people's well-being, protection of women, protection of young women, what Taliban rule will look like, whether President Biden's decision was a wise decision. Uh, a lot of reflecting on the last 20 years about American involvement in Afghanistan and what it was for. All of these questions are obviously very valid. It's why we're talking about this subject. And um in a lot of ways, it, it forces us, I think, as Americans to look a little more closely at the consequences of, you know, international involvement, the responsibility of international involvement. There's just a lot of really, really big questions about this. But uh, sometimes when we have conversations like that, I think we forget um, how personal stories like this can be, how many lives are affected um, and how many people in our own communities here in the United States are, are directly affected um, specifically by uh, this issue. So with that introduction, uh, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show, our old and dear friend, uh, Mishkan, Mishkan Darby. Welcome. Thank you so much, Russell. And I'm excited to be here for just those reasons that you mentioned. Now it's really reminiscent of 20 years ago when we started publishing the Afghan journal through new America media, uh, when I was just 18 years old and getting a new and different perspective on what was going on in the world then. Going back to that perspective now and seeing how little the voices of Afghans who are in it day in and day out are being reflected in the mainstream media is a little bit concerning. But also seeing that some media groups are doing a lot better in trying to gather those voices is heartening. That's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit before the show, obviously, the reason that we all know each other is because we worked in the same newsroom at Pacific News Service, New American Media, Youth Outlook. We worked with Kevin Weston um, and your involvement, as you said, was editor of, of Afghan Journal. And a big part of the mission of that um, news organization was to bring those voices in, right, to find people who were directly affected by the news in different communities, particularly immigrant communities, communities of color, um, people living in poverty, you know, all these uh, kind of meaningful mission statements. And I kept thinking about that and thinking about you, Mishkan, as I've been watching the news for the past couple of weeks, because I feel like I am getting a lot of useful information in a big picture, uh, kind of contextualizing sense. There's a lot of places to get information, but I just am not hearing anything from people in Afghanistan. And I'm not hearing from even from people in the United States who are from that community, from the Afghan American community. So, I, I, you know, I, I really want to open it up to you, but I, I think I would start off by asking, um, since we want to look at this maybe in a little bit of a micro way, what is um, the response? What are the feelings? What's happening among the community of people in the United States who are either immigrants from Afghanistan or you know, children, descendants of, of immigrants from Afghanistan. What's happening in that community now? 
in in the beginning of um, of all of this, when the news first hit, there was a sense of complete hopelessness in the Afghan community, including myself, taking for a whole. I would say hour or two just to absorb it and watching myself just crumble in exhaustion from hearing what was going on and feeling like, wow, the Afghanistan that my colleagues and my friends knew and those people who I saw who were brought up in diaspora left to visit, to help, to build is gone was a tragic moment for me and for others in the Afghan community that quickly turned into action. It it went from us feeling the sorrow and grief to how do we now get our friends who are there, who are stuck in Afghanistan out of the country? How do we get the most accurate news to the reporters here? How do we get the diaspora community in front of reporters so that they understand that the only tragedy is not going to happen in Afghanistan? It's going to happen upon Afghans landing in America and not having the resources that they need to survive. And so for us, it became a moment of reflection and work. And then it moved into, well, while we're doing all of this, can we build a national movement to actually help Afghanistan? And joining groups for myself in particular, I joined uh, the, uh, the Grand National Movement of Afghanistan, which is holding a conference on September 15th to bring together all Afghans and diaspora and political figures who would like to see, you know, how could we sit down and talk with the Taliban or is there a way that we can support another another government coming in um, so that we can make sure that there isn't a complete reversal of all of all of the rights that have been handed to women or fought for for women in the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, that actually kind of raises uh, another question for me, which I'm just curious about. You know, we're talking about the diaspora. I'm somewhat familiar with, you know, your community in the Bay Area, but where else are there high concentrations of people in the United States and, and throughout the world from Afghanistan? Where will people leaving Afghanistan now go? There is a strong population in Europe, um, Germany in particular. There's another population within the United States. Of course, there's like three centralized populations. One is California, Virginia, and New York, where there's larger populations of Afghans. But we're hearing that in the U.S., I mean, there's Afghans who are being flown into Wisconsin and the language barriers are so thick there that they don't know how to navigate. So there's going to be really a welcoming issue everywhere. Uh, And I don't believe anybody was prepared for this to welcome as many Afghans as we're going to be welcoming, which is still not enough. Right. So are, to what extent is that organization or, you know, any organization that you're working with involved in um, that process? Right. To, who is getting out? Right. Who is getting uh, placed where? Who lives where? You know, to, is this kind of a decision that's made by the State Department? Is this something that, you know, we can uh, advocate directly on? You know, how, how is that process working? Currently, it's pretty chaotic. Knowing and pinpointing exactly what agency is making any decision at this point is difficult. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to get out to our congressmen, our senators, trying to reflect uh, the fact that if 
Afghans are brought into different states or different countries where the language capabilities are not there, how could we use a remote system to get the language capabilities over to them? Um, you know, in California in particular, uh, we with the Afghan coalition, we've been doing work for many years with the resettlement of SIVs, who are individuals who are special, uh, given special visas for working with the United States. And these individuals have been coming to the U.S. and pretty much being brought here and then not given any social services and told to make it on their own. And so the Afghan coalition has been picking up the slack there and helping them find housing, learn English, locate jobs. And for many, they have been the lifeline in California. Um, now the Afghan coalition realizes very quickly that uh, they, they need an influx of funding, obviously, to handle all the a- other Afghans who are coming. We, we need to stretch our programming through the state of California, in particular, into Sacramento, um, so that we can ensure that, you know, the individuals who are landing in, in Sacramento are able to receive the appropriate navigation with housing, with health and with education. Right. I, there's so much context here just in our personal relationship and your involvement in this kind of advocacy and media around this issue. Um, I remember, please tell me if I get these dates right, but I really think I got this right. We met around uh, the summer of 2001 uh, because you were working on an article about uh, the repression of sex and sexuality um, for young women and girls in the Afghan community. And I, I think that story was the cover story of Youth Outlook in August of 2001, right before September 11th. Do I have that timeline? Does that sound right to you? That's right. Yeah. And we were pitching the story idea about Afghanistan having uh, a journal um, and Afghans having a journal here in the U.S. And I remember the response from funders were, well, who cares about the Afghans? And then September 11th happened. Um, And, you know, as we've gone through the last 20 years, the same response has been heard quite a bit. It, It went from us focusing on Afghanistan, Afghans and um, hate crimes and things of that nature to it plateauing quite a bit and then focusing once again on Afghanistan, Afghans now and hate crimes again. And it's sad to think about it this way, but how much longer is this hashtag going to trend for us to care? And how could we make most of it and, and ensure that now that the United States has not fulfilled its dedication to the country that they went into and abandoned their artillery in, um, you know, how could we ensure that those have who have fought alongside Americans get out? The women that we as the U.S. made promises to in the country, those people are able to get out. And then once they get here, the promise of them having a better life here, how can we fulfill that? Because at this point... That's not happening. Yeah, I am very interested. I mean, it's, it's 20 years to cover, obviously. But um, again, I, I traced the beginning of this conversation with you uh, to, you know, the weeks after September 11th, when we had a youth forum um, about uh, September 11th and kind of the political fallout. The At that point, Afghanistan had not been invaded yet, but you 
you know, spoke at that forum and talked about your concerns for Americans you knew who were in the in the military and concerns for um, the future of that venture, that military venture, because I, I think you said something along the lines like this is, you know, the Afghan people, we've been through this before, right? We've been through an invasion and we fight and we continue to fight and you know this whatever the american attitude was at the time which you know as i recall is pretty arrogant you know you were quick to point out this is not going to be a simple task and i think at the time it was hard to see that because you know there were two wars going on at the same time at a certain point you know iraq was so chaotic that you know i think public perception was like, oh, you know, the war in Afghanistan is the quote unquote good war, right? There were kind of more easily identifiable progress points, right? Like, okay, the Taliban is no longer in control. There's a government, there are democratic elections, you know, women and girls are going to school and being afforded more rights, even things like popular culture, you know, people could, you know, listen to uh, Western music and movies. And, you know, there was, I, I think, there were things to identify in terms of progress, even if it was very loaded and it was, you know, an act of, you know, imperialism, I guess, you know, I know that's a loaded word as well, but uh, I mean, is, is that what this 20 years has been like for you and other people in your community where initially, you know, there's a lot of fear and then there's some progress and then there are setbacks and then there are bigger setbacks. And now this end point, you know, I, it's not like uh, there was an invasion 20 years, everything's been the same. And now the troops are out, you know, there, there's been a lot of up and down, right? What, what did that look like for you? It's been one big setback. It's been us identifying one big mistake after another, but no one listening to us, right? If you go back to my articles that I wrote 20 years ago, and within the last 20 years, you can hear the sentiment from the Afghan community, those who were educated and have worked in Afghanistan, saying the same thing. One, 20 years ago, our our statement was, don't leave Afghanistan like we did post-Soviet invasion, which is a breeding ground for terrorists and ISIS. And that was said and echoed in the last 20 years. The second sentiment that we shared even as even as late as this last April, when I put out an article, it was the fact that, and I get emotional thinking about this, but it was the fact that, you know, when Franz Sherman was alive, when we were running uh, the Afghan Journal, he put out a piece called The Taliban Are Dead, Long Live the Taliban, if you guys recall. Yeah. He made the that the Taliban were going to come back. And piggybacking on, on that article, I was able to write you know, a few articles that stated, hey, if we don't have the Taliban or someone who is you know, a left-wing Talib at the talks even back in the day, like we're not going to be able to win this war against them. Like there's no way that we can do that because of the strength and force that they have, which is one thing. They have patience. They know that the United States will run out of patience, but they have patience and their resilience come from patience, right? They're a horrible group of people who, you know, sociopaths who live for waiting uh, in, until the, you know, the, the U.S departs essentially and we also wrote pieces myself and other journalists about what are other ways that the um, government in Afghanistan in Kabul could adjust itself to 
fit the culture of the country. We talked about decentralized governments. What would that mean? We, we talked about, you know, so many different ideas that could have been implemented or even tested it in some ways, uh, but that weren't. And it, even as late as April, when they started to do the peace talks under um, Trump, you know, the sentiment was that we cannot negotiate with the Taliban now. It's way too late, number one. Number two, the fact that if we do pull out our troops, there's going to be a mess. I mean, why didn't we change the name of the mission? We had drawn down our troops to something like 2,500. We have far more troops in other countries, right, who have a different name to a different mission. Like, we have a military base in Japan. Like, why couldn't we have a military base in Afghanistan that was there just as a base that is present and ready in case anything happens? Or at least if we were going to pull out to do it appropriately within an adequate timeline. It's bullshit. I'm sorry that President Biden says that he knew that this was going to happen. Had he known what was going to happen, do you think Kabul airport would have been the only military base that the U.S. had, the only stronghold that they had when they knew that they had to leave the airport in order to transport people back into the airport to get them out of the country? I don't think so. And if they did, that was probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, because <laughs> many Afghan scholars could have predicted this day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that has been my main question or I guess confusion throughout this event. And it was brought into focus somewhat by I mean, I've been reading a lot. So and I like to read everything everybody's got to say. So I, I there was a, an opinion piece in uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, I guess you could say it was written by uh, Charles Kupchan, which I, I suppose you could say this is a conservative perspective. The headline is basic is very plain. Biden was right. Right. That's what the headline is um, of this uh, opinion piece. And the general idea is um, the fact that it was so. The, the Taliban was able to reclaim power so quickly as soon as American military was gone meant um, it, the, it would have been fruitless to keep American troops there. Right. Like in order to the, the only way to protect uh, Afghan civilians from the Taliban is to have a essentially a permanent military presence in the United States, in, in Afghanistan, which is not feasible. Um, and the fact that the Taliban was able to come into power so quickly means um, that that Afghanistan was not getting close to a, a place where it could be self-sufficient or defend itself. And there's no way to kind of stay there indefinitely. Now, whatever, that is not my perspective. That's the perspective of this opinion piece, but it is also something that occurred to me watching these events unfold. How and why did this happen so quickly? How many people in Afghanistan are Taliban supporters or sympathetic to the Taliban or think that this is a, a good day? And is that uh, ignorant of me to kind of make that assumption, but maybe you can kind of help us and help our listeners understand like how and why this happened so quickly and what the attitudes are of people living in Afghanistan. Sure. And I've been able to report on both sides just to make sure that like I'm giving my media colleagues who are, you know, on the channel sevens of the world or other agencies, some background on what's happening on the ground. We're hearing two different perspectives. 
if you're a Pashtun man living in a house alone, yeah, it's not so bad for you, right? Like they're like the the Taliban are quiet. They're not messing with people. Now, even that person will tell you that in a few weeks, that won't be the case because they've already sent out their agenda, which is to restrict women significantly and to take little girls out of the arms of their mothers and do all of the things that we've seen the Taliban do before. Um, And then we have those who are not predominantly Pashtun. This is also a war of race in Afghanistan that's happening right now. You guys are seeing a racial war unfold, right? Um, And for that, that means that those who are Uzbeki, those who are Hazara, those who are from Mazar, all of these individuals are at risk. Those who are not Pashtun, who are the predominant race, of course, they're going to see some leniency. But even them, their women won't, right? Their women will not see the leniency that we as America would expect some Taliban to fulfill and live up to. Or I've heard... Very similar to you, Russ, that, you know, this Taliban 2.0 that was in conversation with President Trump, which is why President Trump let him out. The leader who is now supposed to lead Afghanistan let him out of prison three years ago um, from Pakistani jail, you know, that it was supposed to be a peaceful transition. If the power were to come, they were supposed to be at the table. They were supposed to bring in some uh, some kind of trade-off for their power at the table. Now, it always baffles me when people say, had we kept our military there longer, it wouldn't have made a difference. The Afghan military are no cowards, but they're also not stupid. Look, they fought 20 years alongside U.S. soldiers. They saved many U.S. lives. They fought alongside U.S. soldiers and got rid of the Taliban the first time around, right? They fought against the Soviets, many of these folks. They fought a civil war. The resilience that, that these people have is uncanny. And to say that they, they had the training, but they didn't fulfill the mission is bullshit. What we saw was a facade of lies for year after year after year saying that we had these people, you know, trained when in fact all it was was cash exchanging hands from military groups to contractors. And we saw many Americans and many Afghan Americans also getting rich off of this. This cash exchanging hands, but with no realistic understanding of what was being done. It was a complete facade. And those who would ring the bell were, you know, told that their opinion didn't matter. But that's what we saw. It's not I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that the last Afghan government was not corrupt. A hundred percent. They were corrupt. A hundred percent. They were corrupt. And any Afghan will tell you the same thing. But one thing that the soldiers are not that I will put out there are cowardice. And that's what Biden is saying. No, if had we done this right, had we actually taken that money and we had trained our soldiers appropriately, had we taken that money and had we created a mission in Afghanistan that actually lent itself to decreasing poverty, would we have seen a movement like this gain traction? No, had we put sanctions on Pakistan? Look, they're being trained in Pakistan. Everyone knows that. No one's denying that. No, that's one fact no one is denying. But no one's willing to do anything about it. 
you know, Afghanistan is rich with minerals. My uncle, who was a geologist, who was getting his PhD in the 70s, wrote about the minerals of Afghanistan. You know, it's rich with lithium. It's rich with minerals. And China's in there recognizing the Taliban government as an actual government and giving them money already. Yeah. So let's take a step back and think, who are the real cowards? Yeah. Is it those men and women who were forced to put down their arms because they would be the only men who would be there surviving for the families that they had and knowing that under the Taliban rule, their women would not be able to leave the house and they had to support their families? I think any one of us would have done the same. Yeah, I think it's a very convenient narrative, you know, to say like, well, you know, we trained them. We did our best. And, uh, you know, they're just uh, for the first time they faced adversity, they headed for the hills. You know, it's like it it allows us as American citizens a way to maybe, uh, you know, decrease our accountability. And it allows the American government to decrease that accountability and, and particularly President Biden. I'm, I'm very interested to hear because you've already started to answer this, but my next question was going to be, what would a transition uh, have looked like? What would a meaningful transition? So there are a few points that I'm hearing from you. Um, one, of course, you've mentioned a few times was like having the Taliban involved in negotiations for transition. Am I hearing you right? That you felt like that if the American government had included the Taliban, there may have been a way to cobble together some kind of government that wasn't uh, fully exclusionary and and maybe headed off a civil war or whatever we're seeing. Is that right? If that was done early enough, I mean, if that was done back in, you know, in the early 2000s, when France put out that article, 100% it would have made a difference. The manner in which we did it three years ago was a complete shit show, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Pardon my language. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, yes, I got, I got that impression as well, you know, and this was happening, obviously, around the same time as the um, invasion in Iraq. And a lot of the criticism there was anyone who was involved in the Iraqi government or military was immediately excluded. Right. Um, and there was a lot of criticism among people who were policymakers and pundits and people like Franz, to be honest, who said, like, you know, if that creates a power vacuum, right, if you just completely dismantle the government and the military that's there and, you know, occupying forces are not going to be able to fill that vacuum just because they're occupying forces and because of, you know, cultural disconnects, then that vacuum is filled, as we saw in Iraq by, you know, whatever they used to call militias and rebel clerics and kind of what led to, you know, what we called um, an insurrection for a long time. Uh, but it sounds like maybe something similar in Afghanistan, right, where maybe the mission is not just like completely disband the Taliban, ostracize, you know, kind of there was a way to include them in the formation of a government early on. Was was anybody suggesting that at the time? No, of yeah. course not, because that would not have looked good. Yeah. You know, this was about optics as well. We did not at that time. We didn't want to sit down with the Taliban and talk to them. Look, the, the leader that is now being considered for the interim government of Afghanistan, the Taliban leader, he was, as I mentioned, and, and this is documented, uh, he was. He was a he. He was a, what we call a mujahid, right? Someone who fought against the Soviets. He was given arms and training by the United States to fight the Soviets. 
many years ago. And then three years ago, while he was in a Pakistani jail in prison for war crimes against Afghans, he was then let go 30 years ago so that he could come at a back out for God knows what reason. It's not like we woke up overnight and something just clicked in us and said, oh, the, the, the Taliban are back. We saw this happening. And if we saw this happening, why wasn't it being mitigated? It wasn't being mitigated by the Afghan government either. The Afghan government, quite frankly, I agree with other Afghans who say that they were lining their pockets. Sure. Also, it's not easy dealing with Afghans. Let's not be, you know, dumb about that it, afghans are very stubborn tell me more about that yeah <laughs> okay like we are right? yeah. like we're, we're very stubborn prideful people and there's a sense of arrogance there. there there's a sense of like knowing that we have that pride means a lot to us and so admitting that you're wrong as an afghan is unheard of most of the time especially when you're that high up yeah and and that's Step one of where the failure happened, but also with the U.S. government telling everybody that everything was going well. Like, no, it wasn't going well. Yeah. Uh, I have a funny story that I should tell you guys offline, but, you know, my my dad's family, they were part of the royal family and uh, providing the security uh, for the king, Zara Shah, back in the day. And there is a story about how one of the... Um, one of the people who were the bodyguards of the king were actually out on a hill somewhere smoking some hashish while the monarchy was being overthrown. And someone went to him and said, do you know what is happening? And he's like, everything is quiet and well. Everything is quiet and well. Wow. And they're like, no, the monarchy's being overthrown, buddy. And he was like, no, everything's quiet and well. Convincing that man that things were not quiet and well was going to take a lot of energy. So <laughs> I go back to that story every time where the government was like, no, everything is quiet and well. There's Taliban knocking at the door of Kabul, but everything is quiet and well, yeah. you know, including the U.S. government saying, no, they're not going to take Kabul. And everybody around us, all the Afghans who have dealt with this bullshit for year after year after year saying, oh, my God, no, it's imminent that they're going to take over Kabul. Now, what are you doing, Joe Biden, to get all these people out? Yeah. Uh I'm curious also, first of all, that's great. Everything is, yeah, I, I want to use that quote. Maybe we can make it the headline here. What is it? Everything is uh, quiet and well. Everything is quiet and well. That's like the full denial. I've, I've definitely applied that in my own life when everything, you know, it's like that meme where the dog is in the house that's on fire and he's like, this is fine. You know, it's a very right. similar sentiment. Um, I, I am curious because you mentioned uh, Pakistan. And I think this question has come up many times, particularly around the capture of uh, bin Laden. <sighs> Several times, right? You've said it's pretty well known that the Taliban has been training in, in Afghanistan or in Pakistan and getting, you know, informal support or at least uh, not being pursued by Pakistani military. Uh, that came up around, you know, once the U.S. government was willing to say, oh, yeah, we found bin Laden and he was in Pakistan. Uh, I, it was hard for me to reconcile at the time. Like, OK, if your justification for invading Afghanistan was that 
the Taliban was there and the Taliban, you know, helped Al Qaeda train. You know, that's where we thought bin Laden was. Uh, and this was about striking back directly at the people who were responsible for 9-11. It's like kind of uh, there are a lot of questions that it raises, but at least in terms of a strategy and an explanation, a theory, like it makes sense. Right. Uh, right. Bin Laden uh, planned September 11th. Bin Laden was, you know, had support uh, from the Taliban and uh, in, in Afghanistan. And that's the justification for invasion. But once it becomes well known that the Taliban also has uh, safety in Pakistan and bin Laden himself was there, I just I know the obvious reasons for why, you know, Pakistan wasn't ever called. That's a very different country from Afghanistan. There's a long history there also with the Soviets where during the Cold War, I mean, all this stuff goes so far back. And Pakistan is also a nuclear country, you know, like. Uh, and I don't know what the right word is, but like, quote unquote, a, you know, Afghanistan was like the quote unquote easier country to invade, I guess, or le less messy politically um, than Pakistan. But what have you heard from people or what is your understanding of what seems to be some kind of like cognitive dissonance where like if Afghanistan does something, they get invaded. If Pakistan does the same thing, like you just put your hands in your pocket and pretend like it's not happening. Is that like kind of fair to say? It's fair to say, um, and we do that with a lot of countries. We're not fair politically, right? And I, well, I, I don't have to sit here and name off some of the countries, but we see what's happening in certain parts of the world. Let me just say this. By the Afghans saying that Pakistan was involved, we are not talking about the people of Pakistan right. and those who are Pakistani-American, who are here in the U.S. We are not deflecting any kind of racial prejudice onto that group of people. And I want to be clear that, no, most people from Pakistan are really amazing folks. But within those people, they're still supporters of the Taliban or a more strict rule of Islam that is not the rule that is, uh, you know, part of the Afghan culture, I would say. We hear even more recently that the Haqqani tribe, right? that they have picked up more political rule within the Taliban. This is These are the people who are kind of, they run this, the Wahhabi version of Islam. They are the more strict people. They're the ones that recently gave the ISIS threat against the airport in Kabul. They are Taliban as well, right? The Haqqanis are Taliban as well. We're talking about these people who are finding training grounds in Pakistan, and maybe the political government knows about it, maybe they don't. We're not talking about people who are Pakistani-American supporting them. Because I know that our Pakistani friends and, and uh, families have been getting a lot of hate about this as well. So I want to be clear that that hate needs to stop. We're not blaming any racial group for this. What we're saying is that fact, bin Laden was found in Pakistan. There was a reason why he was hidden there so well. Fact, the Taliban, a majority of them, even if you look at them and you see them, you can see even their facial features are from Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. They're not Afghans. And maybe us as Afghans are in denial about that. I'll you know, shout that out and say that, but I highly doubt it. I highly doubt so many people on the ground can identify these folks and say that they are they are from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, which we've heard that they are. The U.S. doesn't want to mess with Pakistan because if they mess with Pakistan, then they're giving India an upper hand. And do we want to do that? Do, do we want to create more turmoil? It's easier to keep 
Afghanistan a battleground and keep it open for minerals and for its oil pipelines. Guys, don't forget that in the 90s, around 1997, the Taliban came to the United States. They were hosted by Washington. They were hosted by Afghan Americans here, a delegation of them. And they were talking about oil pipelines in yeah. the 1997 like range of time when they were first in Afghanistan. There was a lot of support behind them. We see a repeat of history happening again, right? Mm-hmm. And we see the same language that was used then. Hey, they're gaslighting. 100% they are. Yep, they are, right? There's low-level Taliban or Taliban who are Haqqanis who are not listening to higher-level Taliban who are Afghan. Uh-huh. Yep, happening again. You know, um, the U.S. Is, is basically washing their hands of that part of it and saying, we're not there to nation build. We don't care what the Taliban do. As long as we dismantle any kind of terror that's going to come into the U.S., how are we going to assure that when we're all we're creating is a breeding ground where we've left all of our military supplies and arsenals, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. We're assuming that the Taliban are too dumb to use it. Eh, I don't think they are if they took over a whole country and, you know, yeah. in three days. Yeah, I, um, I mean, there are so many important points there. I mean, one that I just want to tease out a little bit is something that we talked a lot about in the early 2000s about the consequences of, you know, Western um, imperialism and on that part of the world, Central Asia and the Middle East. Uh, and, you know, I guess after there's all kinds of like historical facts that some of us know and we, we've discussed before about, yeah, it's like, OK, World War One is over. We, you know, like it's just like car- arbitrarily carve up the old Ottoman Empire, right? Like along whatever shape. And this this one goes to France and this one goes to England, right? Like just madness. Uh, and then uh, w- forgetting, of course, that there are different allegiances within those boundaries, which you've alluded to when you're talking about Afghanistan. So much of this is, I guess, ethnic or so much of this is racial within that country or, you know, whatever the line is between Afghanistan and Pakistan, which there is also obviously a lot of shared culture um, uh, between those two countries, which, you know, this is a lesson that we learned in Iraq. And I, I it's it's helpful to hear that. You know, I only raised the point about Pakistan and I'm glad you clarified it because I, I I'd like to clarify it myself, too. I, I'm not suggesting, oh, you know, Pakistan is you know, there's something wrong with Pakistan or, you know, there's something wrong with the Pakistani people. It I just really think it highlights the level of hypocrisy. Right. Like if, if your justification for invading Afghanistan is that bin Laden is there and then you find out that bin Laden's in Pakistan, you know, um, and it, it really is whatever suits, you know, the United States or, you know, Western um, needs. And your 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 point about the Afghanistan, uh, about the Taliban coming to build a pipeline and talking to people um, in Washington is not surprising because, of course, you know, during the invasion of Iraq, we saw pictures of Donald Rumsfeld, you know, shaking hands with Saddam Hussein years before, uh, because as our enemies change, our friends change, you know, so it's like when you know, during the Cold War, you know, Iran is at war with Iraq and Iran got Soviet support. So the U.S. government trained Iraqi soldiers, you know, and then Saddam Hussein was uh, America's friend until he wasn't anymore. Uh, and the, the legacy of the Cold War on that part of the world is still unfolding. And I think sometimes we forget that historical context. We're very aware of like Soviet involvement in Afghanistan. But you know, the idea of like a, having a, a, a neutral war ground, you know, it's like a 
the United States and, and, and the Soviet Union couldn't go to war because they had nuclear weapons. They would, you know, the whole world would disappear. So there were so many proxy wars throughout the world. And, and Afghanistan has been a pawn in that game for so long. It, even after the Soviet Union fell, um, th- that a whole group of people are still feeling those consequences of kind of being traded back and forth based on old political allegiances. Um, right. And I didn't, you know, I, I I do have other questions about, and this is kind of a bigger conversation about what is the role of the United States in the world. I think because when we were young people, we got very accustomed to, you know, I guess like in our late teens and early twenties, uh, three of us were about the same age. We just kind of got used to just the constant rumble of, wars at a distance you know like there was just like afghanistan was always going on and iraq was going on and then before that it was the cold war or it was nicaragua or it was the first iraq war and now that the united states i don't know what this means necessarily but you know it's like we have withdrawn essentially from iraq we've withdrawn essentially from afghanistan we don't have any kind of imperialist aims anywhere else when things were happening in syria our involvement was very limited uh, and it's kind of a question where it's like, I'll oh, be careful what you wish for, because I think for a long time, I thought my personal political perspective was we're not the police of the world. Like, there's no reason for us to be involved. We do have a humanitarian obligation in some ways, but that's something that we can do as a coalition with, you know, the United Nations. Uh, but now that, again, we've spoken about power vacuums, now that the United States is not taking that role, uh, it, it raises a lot of questions about the future, uh, I think, for all of us. Um, Mishkan, I want to thank you so much for being here today. This was really, really enlightening. I learned a lot. I'm sure that our listeners learned a lot. As, as we said at the top of the show, this perspective, your perspective, um, and the perspective of your friends and colleagues and community members, um, has really been missing, uh, from this really important issue. And I, I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation and thank you so much for coming on and, um, informing us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Russell. And I really hope that we don't forget, you know, the Afghans who are grieving. I will say this again, and I've said it many times. We're tired. We're exhausted. Find your Afghan friends and be there for them, because many of us are re-traumatized as well from what's happening. Our families are re-traumatized. We're there as a pillar of strength for not only our parents who are equating this to post-Soviet invasion, but also our friends who are stuck in the country and those who are resettling here. Find us and tell us you care because it matters right now. And Russell, with you always and with with Quest on Media, I mean, one of the things that I'll say is I'm able to be myself and be, you know, have the views and the point of views that I think others don't look at. And I appreciate being able to talk openly with you guys and being able to put some perspectives out there and not to say that my perspective is the only perspective, but it's important for us to look at all perspectives. I agree. Well said. I think that's those words are actually in our mission statement. So I'm glad we're doing our job or trying to do our job. Eming's going to say, Eming's going to say, what mission statement? <laughs> All right. I wasn't going to say You were anything. thinking it. We know you were thinking it. I think a lot of things do. that I don't say. That's true. Uh, all right. Yes. Thank you again, Mishkan, for being here. Thanks, as always, uh, to our producer, Eming, who keeps us sounding good and keeps us on task for the most part, I think. Uh, except when we push back on tangents but this one was pretty good Uh, and thanks as always to our listeners until next time quest on everybody
This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.